0: My dad used to say, Isn't it a mystery that the same sun that melts wax hardens clay? I remember as a kid thinking, Yeah, yeah, that's a mystery. Why would the same sun melt wax and harden clay? And I thought about it a little bit longer. I thought it's not really much of a mystery at all. In actual fact, the constituency of wax is so designed that when it is exposed to heat, it melts. And of course, as far as clay is concerned, the constituency of clay is such that when it is exposed to heat, it hardens. So it sort of spoiled a bit of the mystery for me. But it made sense. Then I thought, isn't it amazing? You can get two people exposed to the same sets of circumstances and some go one way and some go the other. And then I thought, it isn't really strange because in actual fact, when they're exposed to these circumstances all that happens is you find out what they're made of. You find out what's going on inside. The Bible talks a lot about temptation. It also talks about testing. The interesting thing about it, of course, is that in the language of the New Testament, Greek, they only have the same word, one word, parasmos, for testing and temptation. I suppose when you're exposed to a situation, what determines whether it is a temptation or a testing is your response to it. You see, every time a situation comes your way, it gives you the opportunity to do right, or the chance to go wrong. And the doing right or the going wrong tells you something about yourself. So you can get two people, identical situations, one will go right and the other will go wrong. That's probably why God allows temptation to continue in our lives. The Apostle Paul was very much concerned, as far as the Corinthians were concerned, that they were being tempted to be drawn back into the pagan feasts. All kinds of garbage going on there. He says they don't belong there. He decides that he will try to address this particular issue with them by showing them that their forefathers, the children of Israel, when they were delivered from Egypt, went through rather similar circumstances and that they did not do well. And so he goes through some considerable length describing the historical details of what happened with the ancient children of Israel, and then he applies it to the Corinthians, and he says, these things are written for our example. A modern translation of that is, these things are written to screw it into our senses. To really get the message through. Because you see, what happened to the children of Israel was not only relevant to the Corinthian church, it is relevant today. They were exposed to situations that gave them the chance to do right or to go wrong. That's exactly the situation in which we find ourselves all the time. We call it temptation, or we call it testing. Some people, of course, are not very interested in history. Henry Ford said history is bunk. So much for his opinion of history. I wonder what he would think about the historical view of him now, whether he would regard that as bunk. Hegel, of course, he had a rather skeptical view of history. He said if history teaches us anything, it simply teaches us that it doesn't teach us anything. Probably a commentary on the fact that we're not very good at learning. And somebody else has pointed out that if we do not learn from history, we're damned to repeat it. What was happening with the Corinthians was that they were very, very well aware of the history of their forefathers, but they refused to learn from it, and accordingly were in deep danger of being damned to repeat it. The same, of course, is true for people today. So, let's spend a little time looking into 1 Corinthians 10 to find out what we can about the children of Israel. The children of Israel were people who were greatly blessed. They were greatly privileged. God had told them quite categorically, out of all the nations, he had chosen them to be his precious possession. He had said that they were to be to him a kingdom of priests. They were his holy nation. He had set His specific love and attention upon them in order that they might become the means of blessing to all the nations of the world. There had never been a privileged people like the people of Israel. Unfortunately, they abused their privilege. How did they do that? First of all, through lack of appreciation of the blessings that had been heaped upon them. You'll notice that Paul reminds them that when they were delivered from slavery in Egypt, every one of them followed the cloud. What he means by that is that God showed the way for the children of Israel in the form of a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. They had quite specific guidance from the Lord. Not only that, he says that all of them passed through the sea. You'll remember that after the children of Israel were delivered from the Egyptians, the Egyptians finally caught on and chased after them. They caught up with the Israelites just as they'd come to the banks of the Red Sea. And so they had the sea in front of them, and they had the army behind them. A classic case of being stuck between the devil and the deep Red Sea. little touch of humor there, which I enjoyed immensely. Now, God opened a way through the sea for them. You remember Charlton Heston did that wonderfully uh, for us. And we got the picture of the sea piling up and them going through, and the Egyptians, when they tried to do it, being destroyed. They were, according to Paul, all baptized unto Moses at that time, in the sea and in the cloud. What that means is that they went through an experience where they clearly identified with Moses, the man of God. They were experiencing divine guidance. They were experiencing divine deliverance. They were identifying with the one who had delivered them and who was providing for them. Not only that, when they got into the wilderness, they did have a tendency to grumble. They grumbled that the food wasn't good enough. They grumbled that they didn't have enough refreshment. And so God provided abundantly for them in both regards. He told Moses to strike the rock, and the rock flowed with water. They had a legend in Israel that the rock actually followed them. Paul spiritualizes this, and what he tells them is, in actual fact, it was God in Christ who was following them, providing for them all that they needed in the wilderness journeys. They wanted more food. And so he sent them angel bread. That's another name for manna. Manna doesn't say much because it's simply a Hebrew word which means, what is it? So when they got up in the morning and the manna was there, the kids said, what is it? And their mother said, it's what is it? And so they said, what's for breakfast? And she said, what is it? And they said, well, what is it? She said, what is it? It's a wonderful illustration if you don't have much material and you've a lot of time left for the sermon. Then they had lunch. <laughs> no, I, I won't do that too. Angel bread. Miraculously fed, but they got fed up with that. So God sent the quail. He sent them all the meat that they could take. He provided for them abundantly. He led them meticulously. He delivered them wonderfully. And all he asked them to do was to trust him and live in obedience to him. They wouldn't. Time after time, they tried his patience. Time after time, the Lord allowed testing times to come. But remember that in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, he tells us exactly why he allowed these testing times to come. He said, I did it in order that I might know what was in your heart. Which, of course, is exactly what happens when testing times come. It's like squeezing a tube of toothpaste. When you squeeze it hard, it squirts out. When the testing times come, they squeeze our lives, and what's inside squirts out. And it was very obvious what was in the hearts of these Israelites. It was not gratitude. It was not love for the Lord their God. It was not covenant-keeping. It was not obedience. It was grumbling. It was an attitude that was all wrong. Their hearts were lusting after evil things. Paul tells us. And that was the essence of their failure. They failed to appreciate blessings. The second thing, of course, was that there was a marked lack of obedience as far as they were concerned. Paul points out to us that when the children of Israel were traveling in the wilderness, they were prepared to engage in idolatrous activities. Now, when God gave the Ten Commandments... To Moses in the wilderness, right at the very beginning, he pointed out that he was the Lord and that they were not to engage in any idolatrous activity whatsoever. Sounds very strange and utterly irrelevant to us today. But just a moment. What is idolatry? Idolatry is the substitution of God by man for something that man prefers over God. It is a decision on the part of man not to worship, not to honor, not to glorify the one true God, but to honor and glorify that which is a substitute for the one true God. And remember that the substitute is of human creation and therefore is of human control. So, human beings now worship that which they create, that which they prefer, that which they substitute, and that which they control. That is the essence of idolatry. And when you think about it for a moment, it obviously is one of the most heinous of sins. You say, well, we don't need to worry about that in our culture today, do we? Well, think about it for a minute. Are there any substitutes for God in our culture? Are they of human ingenuity? Are they of human manufacture? Are they of human control? Are they the things that people worship and are they the things that people trust? And the answer is yes. Our culture is full of idols and there is much idolatry in the hearts of men and women. Some people have implicit trust in money. They are pretty well convinced that if you've got enough money, which they never define, but if they've got enough money, you can pretty well do what you like. You can go where you want, you can have what you want, you can get to know who you want, you can avoid what you want, and you can get the best of everything. Money talks, money buys, money is God. You know that's true. Some people have decided that the answer to all their illness is medicine. They expect everything to be fixed, everything to be cured. They get very, very upset if the doctors don't come through. They grumble if the doctors sometimes give the impression of behaving like God, but they expect medicine to be their God. They are very, very upset, they feel cheated if for some reason modern medicine doesn't fix it. Why? Because they trust it, they believe in it, they have great confidence in it, they think that they have control over it, and it becomes a substitute for God and His eternal purposes in people's lives. Sometimes it's money. And sometimes it's medicine. And sometimes when we get into international conflict, it's the military. It's the military that's going to fix it. Just so long as we have a strong military, we can deal with all our enemies and we will be secure. And if it isn't the military and it isn't money and it isn't medicine, then the market will fix it. Modern idols. The substitutes for God of human ingenuity and human control, that which we honor, that which we trust, that which we obey, that to which we bow down. The problem with the children of Israel was that they were prepared to engage in idolatry at the very time that God was outlining his laws to them. For whilst Moses was on the mountain literally receiving the Ten Commandments, the children of Israel were down in the valley dancing and cavorting and fornicating and worshipping around a golden calf. When Moses saw it, he dropped the Ten Commandments. They shattered in small pieces. He talked to Aaron and he said, What is this? What I see... And Aaron gives the classic explanation of what happened. He said, they gave me their gold rings. I threw them in the fire and out came this calf. It just came out. The kind of naive explanation that men and women give God today when he asks them about their behavior. They engaged in idolatry. So they failed to appreciate blessings and they failed to acknowledge God In obedience. The second thing that we notice, of course, is clearly allied to this. Paul points out that the children of Israel in the wilderness gave way to sexual immorality. Now it seems in the epistle to the Corinthians, you keep coming up with this business of sexual immorality. It almost sounds as if we preachers have got a thing about it. We don't. It is simply that in the days of the children of Israel and the days of the Corinthian church, there was a major problem as far as sexual behavior is concerned, and sisters and brothers, there still is. There is still a problem here. God has said unequivocally and ambiguously that a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they too will become one flesh, and sex outside of those parameters is sexual immorality. I'm tired of saying it. It is necessary. The Bible keeps on repeating it. We have heavy ears in this area. And when we begin to think in terms of living rightly or going wrong, the simple fact of the matter is this. In our culture today, it is regarded as perfectly normative to go wrong. Right has become wrong. Wrong has become right. Now the tragedy, of course, is when this attitude begins to insinuate itself into the fellowship of believers, into the church of Christ. It's as old as the children of Israel getting into sexual immorality. The Lord continues to work with these people. He continues to deal with them and to ask them to respond to him in loving, obedience, and faithfulness. And they're not prepared to do it. The result of all this is that not only do they fail to appreciate blessings and fail to obey commands, but they also fail to exercise faith in the living God. They begin to say, can God provide a table in the wilderness? They begin to turn on Moses. They begin to say, let's get rid of Moses and his cohorts, let's stone them, let's turn against God, let's go back to Egypt. When they arrive at the border of the promised land, they send the spies in. Two of them, Caleb and Joshua, come back with a great report. Let's go get it, man. And the other people say, no way. The opposition is too great. The problems are too immense. Our God is not big enough. Let's go back to Egypt. Lack of faith, lack of obedience, lack of appreciation. This is the essence of their abuse of privilege. And God, all the time, has given them the opportunity to obey, and has given them the opportunity to trust, and has given the opportunity of gratitude, and every single time they blow it, and they fail to be what He's called them to be. And these things are written for the example of the Corinthians, and they're preserved in Scripture for the example of the church today. Is it possible that we are failing as God allows us to be tested in the areas of gratitude, in the areas of obedience, and in the areas of faith. What happened as far as these people were concerned? It's very important that we notice that the Scriptures tell us with many of these people, God was not well pleased. He had brought them in large numbers out of Egypt with every intention of taking them into the promised land. They had 11 days' journey through the wilderness. It took them 40 years to cover an 11 days' journey. That was because they failed the test. God was not pleased with them and he said that nobody over the age of 20 with the exception of two men, Caleb and Joshua would go into the promised land. The tragedy was this, he was not pleased with them The tragedy was this, they did not enter into the blessings that were available to them. The tragedy was this, that instead of discovering all that God had for them, because they failed the test, they never came through. These things are written as a warning for us. What could the possible application of this be, as far as we are concerned? We don't need to look very hard because the Scripture is explicit as far as the application is concerned. Application number one. We should be aware of spiritual complacence. The warning that comes through is this. Therefore, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I have no doubt that these people of Israel, when they were delivered from Egypt, when they followed the cloud... When they came through the sea, when they heard the Ten Commandments, I have no doubt that these people said, we belong to the people of God. We've identified with Moses. We've gone through the baptism in the Red Sea. We have eaten the special food in the wilderness. We have experienced the religious rites. We have observed the religious spectaculars. We have made the religious connotations. We are the people. And God said, Oh no, you are not. Beware of spiritual complacence that rests in empty ritual, that rests in peripheral observation of spiritual spectaculars, that rests upon minimal affiliation with Christian things and assumes it's enough. Beware of the kind of spirituality that is interested in how much can I get away with and how little do I need to be involved. Let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, because what really counts is when the testing time comes and the pressure is on, what comes out? Righteousness and holiness and a desire to do right are a willingness and a readiness to go wrong. Beware of spiritual complacence. But the second thing is, be aware of spiritual competence. Now, listen very carefully here. Probably the best-known verse in this whole chapter is verse 13. No temptation has seized you, but such as is common to humanity. God is faithful. He would never allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to cope with. But will with the temptation always make a way out so that you may be able to stand up under it? Now, that's quite a mouthful, but all is it necessary we understand it. Because it is the recipe for spiritual competence in the area of temptation and testing. Number one, understand no temptation that has seized you is unusual or abnormal. It is perfectly ordinary. It is common to man. I often hear people saying, well, Stuart, uh, the the things that the Bible says, uh, they don't really apply today because we've got a new set of problems now. We've got all kinds of new situations now that the Bible doesn't even address. And therefore, the Bible is fundamentally irrelevant to the problems of today. Well, that attitude, that philosophy flies right in the teeth of what the Scripture says. No temptation has seized you, but such as is common to man. In other words, the kind of temptations that come our way today, according to Scripture, are no different from the ones that came to Corinth years ago, and the ones that the people in the wilderness were subjected to thousands of years ago granted the externals change, but the internal principles are identical. Let me read to you a quotation from Craig Blomberg's commentary on First Corinthians. This is what he said, Quote, "'We live in an age of unparalleled developments of technology, unprecedented amounts of information, new physical and emotional diseases, natural disasters, and human warfare.' When we realize that these factors cause suffering on a scale never before known in human history, it is reassuring to know that the temptation believers face are not new. Listen. The external circumstances may differ, but the spiritual dynamics remain unchanged. We have to decide whether we believe that or not. Granted... There are new problems. There are new diseases. There are new emotional traumas. Granted, there are new weapons of warfare. Granted, there seems to be an exacerbation of many things. And men and women have been subjected to all kinds of new situations. But what Scripture is insisting is this. Whilst all the externals are the same, The internals are unchanged, and the internals are this. Every time the pressure comes, it gives you a chance to do right or go wrong. That is the fundamental. Now, if that is true, if those are the issues, then the underlying answers have to be the ancient answers, too. So what do we mean when we talk about be aware of spiritual competence? Number one, we need to be aware that we're not free to make special excuses that we're behaving in a certain way because our circumstances are so different. We are not free to be able to say, well, the Bible isn't relevant to my situation because the Bible doesn't understand my situation. The Bible may say nothing about your externals. The Bible says everything about the internal issues. The second thing to bear in mind is this, that every temptation that comes your way is coming your way because a faithful God has determined it's all right for it to come your way. Why in the world would He do that? Because God is anxious to see what is in our hearts, And he's anxious for us to know what is in our hearts. And we'll never know what's in the tube until we take off the cap and squeeze it. So God allows the testing times to come, and what he longs to see is us going right. He longs to see us living rightly, or righteousness being exhibited. So the faithful God says, no new temptation is coming your way. I am allowing you to come in order to give you the opportunity to do right as opposed to go wrong, and I'll promise you something, he adds, I will never allow you to be tested beyond your ability to cope. You say, I'm not sure I believe that. I'm not sure I believe that. Well, that's what he said. But more than that, he goes on, I will never allow you to be tested beyond what you're able to cope with, but I will always make a way out so that you will be able to stand up under the situation. Somebody has pointed out that we need to be very much aware that in every testing situation, there is an out that will release the excess pressure so that we will be able to live rightly in the situation and do rightly through it. But the way out is not available for the people who are looking for the way in. And not infrequently, you'll find this problem, that people make a dreadful mess of their lives. And when they survey the wreckage of their lives, they bemoan the situation. But if you actually look at the wreckage and the cause and effect relationship, not infrequently, you'll discover that they were confronted with a tempting situation and they were very much attracted to it. They looked for the way into it and were totally disinterested in the way out of it. Bear in mind, the way out is available, but it is not available to people looking for the way in. There are some of us, in some of our temptations, are so seduced by them and so attracted to them that we want to get as close to them as we possibly can. We have a battle within us. We know that there's something fundamentally wrong about this. We know the way that we ought to go, but we're so inexorably drawn to the situation that we find ourselves like the moth circling closer and closer to the flame. The way out is not in the way in. The way out comes when I say, God, I understand the testing. I know what it's all about. I know the options. And my heart says, show me the way out that I may stand up under this thing and come out stronger. There is a spiritual competence in the area of testing. You wouldn't always get that impression the way we talk today. Flip Wilson theology is much more common. The devil made me do it. The devil never made you do anything. The devil will solicit you to evil. God will never allow him to solicit you to evil more than you're able to cope with. will always give you a way out that you may be able to stand up and rid. So what are the practical implications here? Number one, we need to be very much aware of spiritual complacence. Number two, we need to be very much aware of spiritual competence. How we can be competent to deal with these issues. Thirdly, we need to be very much alert to the possibilities of spiritual compromise. Notice how Paul finishes this particular passage in applying it specifically to the Corinthians. We won't get into this because the application is not all that relevant to us. But this is relevant. Flee from all kinds of idolatry. When you find yourself being drawn in to being enamored of that which is a substitute for God, when you find yourself being inexorably drawn in to trust and obey that which is a man-made substitute for God, Recognize the insinuating possibilities immediately and get out of the situation. If you are secretly an admirer of that which is antithetical to God, if you are quietly drawn to that which is antithetical to all that God has in mind, recognize the slippery slope and be done with it And in the power of Christ, turn and live rightly before him. A closing word. A closing word to those of us who would have to say as we listen to something like this. I already fell. I, I, I already blew it. I already messed up. I did not do right. I went wrong. Now what do I do? Well, you've taken the first step by admitting you didn't do right and you did go wrong. The second step is to be deeply disturbed about it. And to tell God you're deeply disturbed about it. Because you know that there's a germ of spirituality in your heart that says, I have a desire to do that which is right. I have a desire not to go Wrong, but there's something inside me that is pulling me down and turn to him for mercy and call on him for grace and receive from him forgiveness and recognize that in him alone is the power to find the way out and to stand tall but what about the person who's not even considered temptation as temptation There's not even thought of sin as sin. Repentance has never entered their consciousness. The thought of the necessity of forgiveness has never occurred to them. What can we say to you? What we can say to you is this. If we don't learn from history, we're damned to repeat it. And the children of Israel never made it to the promised land. The majority of them. And if we are not prepared to live in obedience to and dependence upon the Lord, we will come short of His blessing. And what do we say to those who have never yet trusted Christ for initial salvation, that they might begin to get on the right track? We say, learn from other people's mistakes, see that sin doesn't pay acknowledge Christ, died that your sins might be forgiven, and humbly come to Him and ask God for Christ's sake to forgive you, and submit your life to His Lordship, and live in the power of His indwelling Spirit in newness of life. It's no mystery that the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. And it's no mystery that two people In adjacent beds, in the same ward, in the same hospital, with the same disease, and the same doctor, and the same Medicaid, will move in entirely opposite directions. One in the experience will be drawn closer to the Lord, recognizing that her days were numbered. And that when she dies, she will be absent from the body and present with the Lord, and she dies with a benign smile on her face at peace. And the person in the next bed dies with oaths and curses and blasts God for the day they were born. Why? Same doctors, same disease, same bed, same ward, same Medicare, different hearts. And it's no mystery. Why two men working on adjacent desks who have beautiful single young women around them all day in the office? It's no mystery at all why one of them starts an affair which blows up in his face and he loses his wife and he loses his kids and he moves into economic bankruptcy and is heartbroken. And the other guy, he turns away from the temptation. And he tells his wife he was tempted, and he tells her he loves her, and that he was faithful, and he's thankful that the situation came up because it gave him the opportunity to do right. And his wife embraces him and thanks him for his faithfulness, and they go on, and their marriage is stronger, and their kids feel secure. It's no surprise. You see, the temptation simply shows us What's inside? Let's pray together. Thank you for the history lesson, dear Lord. Thank you that you have meticulously recorded for us your dealings with your ancient people. Thank you that in more recent days we have the New Testament that applied those ancient principles to more modern people. And thank you that your spirit still takes these ancient truths and writes the lessons deeply on our hearts. And my prayer now is first of all for people who have recently monumentally succumbed to temptation and have introduced disaster and pain into their lives and the lives of others. And I ask that you would bring them gently to repentance, cleansing, forgiveness, newness of life. Because they want the way out. And they will repudiate flirting with the way in. And Lord, I pray for people here who've never come to faith. They've never seen that they should be concerned about righteousness and truth and goodness. They've simply allowed themselves to be caught up in wilderness wandering... They've allowed themselves simply to be caught up in mass mentality. They've never really listened to your voice, but they've heard it today. And I pray that you would talk to them in such a way that they would recognize the need for forgiveness and the possibility of it because Christ died for them. And I ask that simply and humbly, in the quietness of their own hearts, they would ask God for Christ's sake to forgive them and to lead them into newness of life. And Lord, I pray for those of us who are old-timers, who've settled down and are in danger of being complacent. We just assume we've got everything buttoned up. And I pray that you deliver us from complacence because we don't want to miss out on anything that you have in store for us. Hear our prayers. And let our cries ascend unto you in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.